This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. But imagine for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors. Develop healthy coping mechanisms. Improve your communication skills and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen. What would you think of the heavens, where the stars were all in, arranged at even intervals in concentric circles? Would you like that? Would you like to go out at night and see that? No. We like the stars scattered as they are, and we also like to see when the waves break on the shore, the patterns of foam. And you know, the funny thing is, you can look at those patterns hour after hour and realize that they never make an aesthetic mistake. Never. They never do anything inelegant, just like a cat. It never makes a bad move. Do you make a bad move? Ever? Or are you like a cat? Or like patterns on the phone? Quite a question. Welcome to Being in the Way, the Alan Watts podcast. And today we're going to be listening to a session from Learning the Human Game. This is from a seminar recorded in 1965 at University of Michigan. And he talks about some very interesting metaphysical perspectives. Many of you will know the first session from this seminar well from The Coincidence of Opposites, which has been part of the Tao Philosophy series, and now we're remastering many of those talks. And so they'll be appearing on our podcast and also on our new streaming channel, which will begin this fall. Look for the Alan Watts channel and also two new Alan Watts apps coming your way. But today, we're going to hear a talk that has been in the archives for many years, part two of Learning the Human Game. These podcasts are produced by the Alan Watts Organization in conjunction with the Ramdas Be Here Now Network. Again, this is from Learning the Human Game, 1965, University of Michigan. And here's Alan Watts in Learning the Human Game. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. 
but imagine for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors. Develop healthy coping mechanisms. Improve your communication skills and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen. This morning, I was talking to you about the problem of our fundamental assumptions about life and health. And this, of course, therefore involved a lecture on metaphysics. Because what I understand by metaphysics is simply whatever system of axioms we're operating on. And I tried to tell you what mine is. And you may say it's arbitrary, because I can't prove any of these assumptions. But I'm just suggesting that they are a fruitful basis for a life. That word fruitful is very important. In mathematics, for example, there are certain problems which are considered fruitful and certain problems which are considered unfruitful. You can't, for example, establish a mathematical system which excludes the rule of consistency. There's no future in that. No game, no play in it. And this, you see, becomes one of the most crucial questions about the theory of games and trying to decide what are good game rules as distinct from bad game rules. And let's say game rules that are fruitful are good. Games that give us a lot of play and a lot of adventure. And uh, because what we want to do, apparently, is to go on living in an interesting way. And so the nature of productive or unproductive, fruitful or unfruitful game rules is extremely important. I think there's a parallel between ethics and language. Some of you have read my book, Psychotherapy East and West. I don't want to bore you with repeating things that you've already read, and I know some of you haven't, but uh, let me just go over this a little bit again. Uh, language is a very curious model for problems in ethics and behavior in general. Not so long ago, uh, a new edition of Webster was published in which the editors took an extremely liberal point of view. They regarded their duty 
as lexicographers to record the way language is actually being used by most people now. And therefore they admitted into the dictionary all sorts of expressions, like, say, the word contact used as a verb, which is extremely bad grammar from an old-fashioned point of view. But they record all this kind of thing because people are doing it. And also to address a clergyman as Reverend Smith is very bad grammar. Shows you're not educated. But uh, the dictionary now records this use as something legitimate. And the most marvelous review of this dictionary was written by Dwight MacDonald in The New Yorker, who said the lexicographers have abdicated their responsibility. It's true that language should live and should change. But if the lexicographers give in entirely to this, there are no standards. Now this, you see, is, a, is an ethical question, but it's put in the form of language. Now what are we to do about that? There are certain people who argue that English, as spoken in London in 1910, by the upper-class people who had public school and university training, is the right English language. If you get, for example, such a book as Fowler's Modern English Usage, you will find a marvelous guide to a certain epoch of correct English with very funny and sharp criticism of variations from this. For example, let's consider just one word to dig which has become extremely common in American speech, I dig you. What advantage does this word have over appreciate or enjoy or understand? Now, you must admit, it does have a little bit of advantage. I appreciate you I enjoy what you say. I understand what you say. Man, I dig what you say. Has a degree more of intimacy. It means that you and I belong to the same club. We probably smoke pot. And so we've got a little secret between ourselves that appreciate doesn't share. Enjoy doesn't share, understand doesn't share. So it becomes a word of a subculture that has certain practices that are outlawed by the culture at large. Now, here you see the dictionary people are confronted with a dilemma. They have to be authorities because there must be rules. If there aren't any rules of language, we can never understand each other. If I refer to this one minute as a table, the next minute as a boojum, the next minute as a sub-dub, can't even spell that, <laughs> you don't know what I'm talking about. But because we have agreed rules of language, just as we have agreed rules of which side of the road we shall drive on, and what kind of things we shall eat our dinner out of, and with what implements, and what sort of things we're going to eat anyway, we can have a community. We can't have a community 
if that's what we want, and incidentally, that's what we are, unless we have agreed rules. Now, the problem with ethics in general is this, that to find out how ought we to behave, people look up the past. And they say, now, Moses gave us ten commandments. And those ten commandments are sacrosanct. You've got to go back to those. But, you know, when you come to be, I'm 50 years old now, and, uh, so, and, I, and I have five grandchildren. And I realize how stupid my grandfather was, because I've attained the same age. <laughs> In other words, I know how little he knew. Although when I was a little boy, he seemed to me a marvelous authority. So constantly there's a tendency in us to look back to the past and say there are certain tried and true rules which people have followed for centuries. And they work. And we should adhere to the old rules. That's partly true. It's very important truth, as a matter of fact. Just so long as it isn't made an absolute truth, then it becomes dangerous. Because while those people themselves, who are in our past, were adhering to their tried and true rules, they were also inventing things. They were trying new experiments. And so here, here's the, the parallel between ethics and language. If, if a language is dead, like Latin, it tends not to invent any new words. Although, as a matter of fact, at the Vatican Council, where all the debates are carried on in Latin, they have to have Latin words for things like telephone, automobile, and so on. But on the whole, the debate, the theological debates in Latin utterly resist new words. And so in India, where theological debates are carried on in Sanskrit, which is likewise a dead language, which is no longer used in living speech, but simply a language among scholars, they have no new words. But a living language is constantly inventing new words and new forms of grammatical expression. You are watching now a time in which the sentence is going out of existence. The subject-verb-predicate form of expressing yourself is, not, uh, is lapsing from our literature. And yet our literature remains perfectly intelligible. I mean, except a guy like Burroughs, who's now advocating m making a manuscript and cutting it in four pieces and rearranging them so that it reads a different way across and all that jazz. But by and large, the language must keep moving. Now then, what's the duty of the grammarian and the lexicographer? His duty is to keep everybody informed of the changes that are being made. He tells you all these new things are current, and in terms of what you're used to, the old language, after the, that's the language he uses for the definitions. You know, he has dig. It has this meaning to make, put a spade in the ground and uh, uh, move the soil. That's dig one. Dig two, a word used to mean appreciate, to understand, etc., etc., in a certain 
milieu of our society. What he's doing, he's keeping everybody informed of the way the rules are changing. And by that, by those means, we can all keep up with it and know what's happening. Now, we don't feel any violence exercised upon us when we observe the rules of language. It is not a crime, punishable by imprisonment, to speak bad English. It may be a crime to tell a lie or to speak a libel. But to disobey the rules of English is not a crime. All that happens is you're not understood. And this is a very healthy situation because we have very little trouble as a consequence in getting people to be more or less intelligible. It's difficult. The English is a very difficult language to learn. It has no grammar. It's purely idiomatic. But nevertheless, an incredible number of people succeed in this very, very complex task. But we have an attitude to the rules that is completely intelligible and rational. If you can't speak the language, you can't have fun with your friends. If you want to get on with people, if you want to have friends, you've got to speak this language. That's all there is to it. Now, it seems to me that problems of ethics should be approached in exactly the same way as problems in language. That uh, ethics is not something that should be referred entirely to the past. We should try ethical experimentation. What would you like to do? What new kinds of behavior would you like to explore? Do they injure anyone? Do they deprive anyone? Or would they be a new adventure? We should be creative in ethics. We should make out new patterns of ethical behavior, just as we make out new patterns of language in our effort to describe new experiences. That's what it is. I mean, I've been involved very deeply in the problem of finding language that is intelligible for experiences that people haven't had. I've, uh, my whole work as a writer has been devoted to the study of the psychology of religion and of religious experiences, mystical experiences, things that are supposed to be ineffable, which means unutterable, but I maintain they can be uttered if you're clever enough. So I went from that into the study of changes of consciousness brought about by certain kinds of drugs and said, I will describe what is going to happen because I would love to be able to meet this challenge. And so, but in doing this, I have to invent languages. But I have to somehow say, in terms of your language, this is the old language, what my new language means. So in the same way, why don't we invent new forms of behavior? We've got to be stuck with all the forms of behavior we've always been accustomed to. Why not try something different? And see if it works. Now what does it mean works? That's the question, isn't it? 
Then we get down to what games work. Now let's take an illustration. I'll give you three games. First is tic-tac-toe. The second is something of the level of chess or bridge or poker. And the third is three-dimensional chess. Now tic-tac-toe is a game that reduces itself to tossing a coin. Who's going to start? Because if you know how to play tic-tac-toe, you win every time you have the first start. So it becomes boring. A game, as we say, with no future. Now let's go to the other extreme, which is three-dimensional chess. You, I don't know if you've ever tried to play this. You play it on eight boards, representing the eight levels of a cube. See, a, a chess board is eight by eight. All right, pile eight boards, as it were, on a high-rise, and then play the men, the same set of men, through the boards. Imagine a knight's move inside a cube. Well, most people say this is absolutely too complex for me to follow. I can't keep up with this at all. You have to be a super intellect to do this. I mean, it's, chess is a complicated enough game on a surface to put it in a cube, and only the masters can even begin to understand it. So, whereas tic-tac-toe fails because it's much too simple, and therefore boring, three-dimensional chess fails because it's too complicated. Now, why is tic-tac-toe so boring? Because it reduces itself to tossing a coin, and according to probability laws, the more times you toss a coin, the more is the probability that heads and tails will turn up in a 50-50 ratio. So what? In other words, the way in which, it, although each time you toss it, you've got a 50-50 a chance of which will turn up, you see. might be one or the other. There's no way of predicting it. You can predict that in 500 times of tossing, you will approximate to 250 times heads and 250 times tails. And in a 1,000, you will be even closer to 500 times heads and 500 times tails. In 2,000, still closer. Now, as a game becomes predictable, it becomes boring. That's why people don't want to know their future. If you could go to a fortune teller or astrologer who would tell you just exactly what was going to happen to you, we all have a certain reluctance, I think, to do that. Because if we know what the outcome of something will be, it's not worth doing it. This is one of the very marvelous things that is a result of some research going on today. The RAND Corporation is extremely interested in a method for predicting the outcome of a war starting at any given moment. They're trying to find systems for assessing the military potential and saying, now, if a war starts now, the Russians will win, the Americans will win, or whatever, so that if you know what's going to happen, you don't have to do it. 
So in the same way, if you know the result of a certain course of action, you will lose the inclination to take it. The fascination of life, the fascination of games, is the unknown result, not the known result. So then, between the unintelligible complexity of three-dimensional chess and the all-too-intelligible non-complexity of tic-tac-toe, there lie games like bridge, checkers, chess, poker, wherein we get a certain kind of blend of chance and skill. Games of pure skill tend to work themselves into a blind alley. We get people who are monsters of skill. The great chess masters, the great golfers, great shooting people, who, you know, bounce a ping-pong ball on the ground and suddenly shoot it through with an arrow. I can't compete with that. I think it's fascinating, I think it's marvelous, but I can't play with that. So what we're all looking for is an element of randomness and an element of order. Some skill in relation to some randomness. So we get optimal games in the middle. And we feel that these are games which have a future. You can, go, you can get interested in them. And you can go on and on and on and on playing them. Because, on the one hand, you will never master them. And on the other hand, they will never seem to you absolutely beyond your ability, as three-dimensional chess might. So you've got here a possibility of challenging the disorder of pure chance, and yet you will never arrive at the point of conquering it. And for some reason, the human being finds this to be a beautiful situation. Let me switch immediately the whole analogy to another field altogether, the field of gardening. In the 18th century, there was a fashion for formal gardens, where all the tulips formed fours, where trees were clipped in the art of topiary to resemble peacocks and sundials, and... Uh, elephants, and all kinds of things, and where all gardens were arranged on a symmetrical plan. At that time in history, there was even somebody who complained that the Lord God had not properly arranged the stars in the sky, that if he had made symmetrical patterns, the heavens would be far more beautiful than they are with the scattered. But don't we recognize today, from our aesthetic point of view, that the scatter of stars is lovely. What would you think of the heavens, where the stars were all in, arranged at even intervals in concentric circles? Would you like that? Would you like to go out at night and see that? No. We like the stars scattered as they are, and we also like to see when the waves break on the shore, 
the patterns of foam. And you know, the funny thing is, you can look at those patterns hour after hour and realize that they never make an aesthetic mistake. Never. They never do anything inelegant, just like a cat. It never makes a bad move. Do you make a bad move? Ever? Or are you like a cat? Or like patterns on the phone? It's quite a question. But there seems to be somewhere an optimal situation. Everything arranged symmetrically and in an ordered way, we understand and we feel safe there, but we don't like it. It's confining. Everything purely chaotic, we can't make out at all. But there's somewhere a middle ground in relation to whatever degree of, human, of complexity the human nervous system has attained. There is a middle ground which we feel comfortable in because it's orderly, and yet at the same time it contains an element of excitement and unpredictability. And the balance of these two things is what we call the good life. So this is a practical application of the theory of games, behavior. You've got to have two ingredients, you see. The ingredient of control and the ingredient of no control. And always be sure you have both. Now, we're living in a culture that is opposed to this, which believes that life can be controlled. That wants, or thinks it wants, it doesn't really want, but thinks it wants, to cut out the random element. And so, we constantly say, there should be a law against it, whatever it is. And we are, by doing that, by working in that direction, we are going to create for ourselves a society, a culture, in which everything is regulated. It will be safe that way. Today, in Beverly Hills, California, you can't go out at night and take an easy stroll for several blocks before a police car will overtake you and say, what are you doing? They say, I'm just taking a walk. Well, you're a suspicious character. What are you walking for? Don't you own a car? Get off the road. We don't want strangers wandering around here. So whenever you want to go anywhere, you have to get in your damn car and go. You're not allowed to walk. So in the same way, you want to start a business? You want to make shoes and sell them somewhere to someone? You want to raise uh, avocado pears and um, put them mildly on the market just to make a little money? What happens? I have a friend who raised avocado pears. A man came from the Department of Commerce 
with a 500-page form to fill in. He said, I don't have a secretarial staff. I don't have, like the Carnegie Institute has, a vice president in charge of relations with the government. He said, I won't fill your form in. Take me days. I haven't that kind of time. And they came back and said, you must fill this form in. He said, I can't fill it in. So he made the representative of the Department of Commerce sit down and fill in the form himself. He said, here are my records. You fill in the form. And the man stayed there several days and filled in this form. Well, now, you know, the, the fact that all these controls had to exist was the result of people complaining about all the people who broke the rules. And so they worked out a form that if you had, you could fill that in, you see, uh, you, you would be controlled. You wouldn't be breaking the rules. But the society, which is foolproof, where the laws are really efficient so that they're properly enforced and there's the minimum opportunity for anyone to make a mistake, that society is the complete 1984 Big Brother setup. Nobody enjoys it. The game is no longer worth the candle. There's no risk. There's no adventure. To be completely safe is to be completely dead. On the other hand, you can see that the opposite of that is equally absurd. Where there isn't any regulation, where you have a kind of anarchy, and where everybody has to carry a sword, as it's becoming in New York today. You have to go around armed in New York because of the proliferation of street crimes. That's Nobody wants that either. So we're always looking in the problem of government, the problem of law, the problem of control, for an optimal balance between liberty and license and between control and spontaneity. And exactly the same problem exists for the painter, the sculptor, the musician. You see, let's take one of the very greatest of Western musicians is uh, J.S. Bach. To our ears, he appears symmetrical, orderly, stately. But every so often, Bach actually introduces a trick. He has a wonderful control of dissonances. He lets things happen and so combines his formality with little touches of informality. Just little touches, just a bit. So much salt in the stew and keeps you constantly fascinated. So, in, in painters, say, let's take uh, <coughs> Chinese calligraphy, which I was talking about earlier, is very, very strictly disciplined in formal art. But what they love is a real master calligrapher allows accidents to happen. His brush runs dry suddenly, and you get a sweep of a line like a horse's tail, where the ink ran dry. And there's a kind of 
interesting texture, an interesting dynamic pattern in that, which is much appreciated. Lovely. It livens the whole thing up. So they call this the art of the controlled accident. You see, the element in an artist which differentiates a very competent technician from an inspired master is that an inspired master is first of all a competent technician. And then he lets go of himself and allows things to happen beyond his control. But he introduces the elements beyond his control into the context that he has under control. So he can show you something that is a mess, but he'll put it in a context that makes it look marvelous. How a photographer can alter his framework in a certain way so as to take a filthy old ashtray or a pile of garbage and make it look gorgeous. He'll alter the light just thus and so, and he'll get the color absolutely marvelous and correct. You'll use all that technique, and you'll focus that technique on a heap of junk. Have any of you played with a gadget called a kaleidoscope? A kaleidoscope is a, um, it's not, it's like a kaleidoscope, but a kaleidoscope has pieces of glass set into it so that as you turn it and look through it, the pattern alters. A kaleidoscope has instead of pieces of glass a lens which shows you anything in the surrounding area and you look at it and it turns it into an octagonal repeating pattern. In other words, there are eight, there's a circle made up of eight triangles, each of which reflects the other. Now, if you look at a bookcase, which is an orderly thing, it's relatively uninteresting. If you look at uh, any kind of symmetrical field, what you get in the kaleidoscope will be rather boring. But look at a mess. So a dirty ashtray, a messy desk, that's where you get the most beautiful results. So apparently, the, 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 the way we human beings tick is that that's what we want to see. We want to see the junkie and the orderly thrown together. And either one of them, either one extreme will horrify us. But if you put them together, it swings. Because that, you see, is exactly what we all are. We are a combination. See, we, are, we as we look around the room, all of us look regular. <laughs> we are just used to each other. We think that the way we are is, 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 is the rational way. But if you took a human being and put him in front of somebody who had never seen a human being before, and just took one of these things, you think, well, what kind of a mess is that? What a wiggly object that is. Doesn't make any sense. But because there are enough of us, and it keeps repeating the pattern, 
cha 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 two eyes each time. I begin to say, oh, well, that's order. But I don't want to see just that. I don't want to see the same face each time. I want these eyes to be brown, these eyes to be blue, these eyes to be serious, these eyes to be comical, these eyes to be critical, these eyes to be amorous, these eyes to be joking, pointing fun at me, or whatever, see? Then I get a feeling in the midst of regularity. So I think this is our problem in trying to arrive at an idea of what is mental health. Mental health is a good game. And a good game is what keeps a certain balance between randomness and order. And a healthy society, therefore, is one which keeps a proper balance between law and whimsy. But this always escapes our capacity to enforce it. Do you see that? We, to, to have a society like that, we've always at a certain point got to trust the other fellow and give up control. Take a risk. Take a gamble. So you see now, in, in the Chinese theory of human nature, they disagree with us. We are apt to feel that people can't be trusted because we say the veneer of civilization is very thin. And when really critical events come up, even the most respectable people turn out to be savages. Little children, I've often heard people say, they're nothing but animals. And if you want to get these animals to have culture and to behave themselves, you've got to whip them. And this is, of course, the philosophy of original sin. But in the Confucian philosophy in China, they have a, a completely different idea, which is that the fundamental virtue of a human being is defined as human-heartedness, which is a higher virtue than righteousness, a higher virtue than propriety and fine manners, to be human-hearted. And when Confucius was asked for a definition of human-heartedness, he refused it. He said, you know what it is. Now, what is human-heartedness? Look, we know we all have passions. We are greedy. We are lusty. We are, uh, like to be comfortable and try and wangle ways in which other people do the work for us and so on. And we know very well we all do these things. Now, Confucius' idea was that this kind of human nature is very trustworthy. You can rely on it. You can rely more on people's natural passions than you can 
on their virtues. For example, if I want to wage a war, and I want to do it in order to capture somebody else's wealth and his women, I'm going to be very careful in waging that war that I don't destroy his wealth and his women. I want them in top condition, so I'm going to wage a very skillful war that will paralyze my opponent, but not destroy and not spoil the things that I want to get from it. But if I wage a war, not because I'm greedy, but because I'm righteous, and that enemy, that nation, has done something wrong morally, I'm going to demand unconditional surrender, and I'm going to use atom bombs and every kind of annihilation against him until he gives up. I will wreck his whole situation in the name principle. And Confucius, 600 years B.C., wagged his finger at that and said, that's not humane. It's too virtuous. He said, the goody-goodies are the thieves of virtue. So, we suffer, you see, in our culture from righteousness. You've been listening to Alan Watts in a talk from the seminar Learning the Human Game. This was the second session, and this podcast was co-produced with the Ram Dass Be Here Now Network. For further information about the spoken word recordings of Alan Watts, please visit alanwatts.org. And also, thank you to Moment Records for use of our theme music by Zakir Hussein from his Rhythm Experience album. Again, I'm Mark Watts. This has been Being in the Way. And you'll find more information at the alanwatts.org website. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time is a concept that weighs heavily on almost everybody. You can often feel like you don't have enough time, like it's a tangible asset you keep in a savings account. But imagine for a moment that time was unlimited. How would you use it? Would you spend it meditating for as long as your heart desires? Would you read book after book? Would you just take a nice nap? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. Speaking with a therapist on a regular basis is a great way to increase your self-awareness and self-esteem. Deal with overthinking. Build a greater sense of purpose. Alter negative thoughts and behaviors. Develop healthy coping mechanisms. Improve your communication skills and much more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, plus switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com. 
betterhelp.com slash Allen today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Allen.